Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2184 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. The message this week is week 39 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Today as we continue our series of the good news according to John the Apostle, if you think back last week if you were here or if you watched it online, we focused on the three trials before the Romans officials as Jesus was turned over for crucifixion by the high priest in the Sanhedrin. The Romans officials know that Jesus is not guilty of any crime and certainly not guilty of the death penalty, but they cave in to the political pressures in a rush to judgment. And our scripture today is John chapter 19, verses 17 through 37, and it's starting on page 1684 in your pew Bible. Because after the mockery of their six illegal trials, Jesus was turned over for crucifixion. In today's message, we've all heard messages on the cross, but today I want to focus on what crucifixion really entails. So follow along as I read, starting with verse 17 of chapter 19. The crucifixion of Jesus. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side of Jesus and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write, King of the Jews. But this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took off his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciples, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. And then the death of Jesus. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked it in a sponge in it, and they put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received this drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. 
Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken of the bodies and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man whom they had crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that his body was, that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man, which is John, who saw it, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of my bones will be broken, Psalm chapter 34, verse 20. And as another scripture says, so they, they looked on the one whom they have pierced. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Now, regardless of your position on the merits or the morality of execution as a form of justice, everyone should agree that there's nothing pleasant or attractive about putting someone to death, even if it's a just reason. Now, all instruments of death are ugly and brutal by their very nature. And trying to make them less horrific would just be absurd for us. Nevertheless, execution has come a long way since the days of Christ. Even the last hundred years, we've seen vast improvements on the way those on death penalty are executed. There have been significant changes. Modern methods of carrying out capital punishment differ vastly from the ancient methods in two significant ways. First, modern executions are done in private, keeping a witness gallery very small of those that might view it. Ancient executions were public spectacles. They were almost a carnival-like atmosphere around them. It was something that people from the town around came to view and to speculate on. The exp express purpose of the public execution was it's perceived to be a deterrent from the similar crimes. And secondly, modern executions are designed to bring death swiftly and painlessly as possible. Not the ancient methods. They were painstakingly crafted to extend the process of dying as long as possible while, while ma maximizing agony. Now, if you look in your bulletin insert on the side, it says the crucifixion of Christ. This is what we want to focus on today. All of the methods of execution, whether ancient or modern, none of them rivaled the practice of crucifixion in terms of its cruelty. The ancient orator Cicero described crucifixion as the worst extreme of all tortures inflicted upon slaves, and Tactitus called it a despicable death. Now, according to Greek historian Herodias, the Persians invented this practice after experimenting with many other means of delaying death, such as stoning, drowning, burning people, boiling them in oil, strangulation, and flaying their flesh. Eventually, the Persians settled on impaling people that were particularly despicable criminals because they didn't want the ground below them being defiled because according to their god, Orzmuts, he had made that ground sacred. And it reminds me of Haman in the story of Esther where Haman was impaled on that pole that he had created for Mordecai, his arch enemy. Now, Alexander the Great adopted crucifixion which influenced by his four generals who succeeded him, continued his practice, and they passed it on to the Carthaginians, 
The Romans inherited this practice from the Carthaginians, and they found new ways to extend the death and to maximize pain through crucifixion. Crucifixion combined the four qualities that Romans prized most about execution, an unrelenting agony, protracted death, public spectacle, and utter humiliation of the one being crucified. The victim typically endured a scourging prior to crucifixion, as we saw last week that Christ did. Now, the lictor, or those, the man who was in charge of that torture, who was an expert in torture, could affect how long a person would survive on the cross by adjusting the decree of the victim and how much they were injured. If the executioner wanted the person to die quickly, the scourging would be with bits of sheep bone in that whip, which ripped away the flesh from their bones and caused internal bleeding. If he'd wanted to not prolong it, the death, or wanted to prolong the death on the cross, he would just use reg the regular whip with their leather thongs on it. A lighter sentence would allow the person to last on the cross much longer, as long as a week on the cross. Merrill Unger states that in one instance we have on record, a person survived nine days on the cross by just receiving a little bit of that sour wine vinegar during the course of those nine days before that person died. Can you imagine hanging on that cross in the hot sun, the cold nights for nine days straight? And this was the physical character of the crucifixion that Jesus faced. The spiritual dimensions of his suffering are just unimaginable. Taking my place on the cross and your place on the cross, he bore the penalty for my sin which was an eternity in torment. He also suffered for all of our sins. The penalty was that eternity in torment. This penalty was compounded by the billions who would sin throughout the ages were poured out on that Son of God that day as he hung on the cross. And by this art of sacrifice, or this act of sacrifice, Christ confronted evil on a cosmic level. And through his suffering, he ensured the evil's defeat. But we should not cling to the notion that Jesus was a helpless victim with a failed plan. Jesus did not die a martyr's death that night, nor did he die before he completed his entire intended mission. He finished what he had come for. On the contrary, while Pilate was deluding himself into thinking that he wielded the power over Jesus' life or death, he had none. Not at all. He handed down the death sentence in obedience to an inescapable compulsion to the perfect harmony of God's sovereign plan. That perfect plan that was founded before the ages began, before the creation of the world. Jesus began his lonely march to his destined glory, and that appointed hour, as we learn throughout the book of John, my hour has not yet come. Well, now his hour had come. Before entering the light of the resurrection, he had to travel through darkness and suffering. As we get back to verse 17, our starting point, none of the Gospels mention much about the Lord's procession, the place to the crucifixion of that hill that we later called Calvary, probably because it was a familiar sight to that first century crowd across the empire. 
crucifixions were not uncommon. It's no uncommon than I've seen a funeral procession today going down the road, and we might pause and give it some thought, but nothing much more. The victim stood as he marched up the hill to Calvary in the center of an imaginary circle, and there was four guards, one on each of those corners of that circle. The execution detail was called a cordonio, which served under the command of the extractor mortis, the guy that led those four men with the victim in the center, carrying that cross. Now, recent historical and archaeological findings shed a little bit more practice on the crucifixion, on what it really entailed in that first century of Christ's death. And thanks to Paula's expert ability to be able to blow up an image and then put it together in lines. If it was me, I'd have this line over here and that one over there. But Paula gets everything exact as she so crucially does each time. The victim was typically forced to carry the, what's called the petabulum, this crossbeam here, up the hill after he was scourged, carried it on his shoulder. And we know from the other Gospels that Christ was so worn out that he stumbled beneath a load. That Simon of Cyrene had to come and finish him helping carrying that petabulum of that hill. Carrying that crossbeam, waiting for this vertical post called the stipes. Now this was actually six to eight feet tall, the stipes was, so it was pretty high. This was about six foot across at the top. And they joined them together through a joint, uh, a um, meant a joint that went into this top beam. So they slammed that top beam down on it, probably when it was down on the ground, to connect it together. They wore a crude sign around their neck while carrying that petabulum up the hill. And the sign listed the crimes that they had committed. So everybody that passed by as they were carrying that petabulum up the hill could see, well, that person was guilty of those crimes. And that sign was called a titleless. And it hung around that victim's neck, bearing the names and the list of his crimes. The sign was nailed to the victim's cross when they reached the top. And I meant to get a pushpin, but they nailed it to the top here of the petabulum. And the head would rest about in this area, and it would list all the crimes that that person committed so anyone walking by could see it. The sign was nailed there. The Romans had designated a place outside the city of Jerusalem for the purpose of crucifying those criminals. The locals named it the place of the skull, perhaps because the outcropping of that hill looked like an image of a skull, or perhaps merely because it was the place of death. Three had been sentenced to die that day, and undoubtedly more would suffer within the next week that same fate because it was common among the Romans. As we move on to verse 18, John's readers need no more description of the Jesus' mode of execution than the short phrase, they crucified him. The details of the method were indelibly etched in their minds. But we as 21st century believers have a hard time grasping that because we've never seen an execution through crucifixion. 
We need historians and scientists to help us to understand it just a little bit better. The execution detail laid the petaluma, petabulum on the ground and then cinched it up to the, side, the stipes that was laying there. And once they had it securely fastened, then they nailed the list of crimes to the top. And then the person that was being crucified was asked to lay down on this cross. And with the head being here, their arms were stretched up as far as possible to that petabulum, and its feet were put together and nailed to the bottom of the cross as they hung there. They usually tied the arms up with ropes because nails and the metals it took to make nails were pretty precious. So most of the times they actually used rope to tie their hands up there. It took much longer also if they were suspended by ropes for that person to die, and that was part of the crucifixion Part of what they wanted to allow that person to live as long as possible while nailed there on that cross or hung there with ropes on that cross. Dying took much longer. And sometimes to delay death and prolong the victims, the executioners would also put a what is called a siddle right in the middle. And it went right sort of below their bottom and they set something just to rest on a little bit. And the whole purpose was that is so that their lives would last as long as possible and suffer as much as possible. As they sat there with their arms outstretched, they could rest a little bit until they had to push up against those nails until they were able to get one more breath of air to continue living. If, however, they wanted to hasten the death, he nailed the victims through the wrist right here instead of the ropes or maybe a combination of both as they outstretched their arms above their head you know, we see so many times the arms are stretched like this, but it was actually stretched out as far as they could above the head so that they would have to strain to pull themselves up. Close examination of historical records reveal that death usually came from exposure, dehydration, starvation, or fatigue, asphyxia. In the case of asphyxia, the victim became too exhausted, too dehydrated, too malnourished to pull themselves up for one last breath before suffocating by the weight of their own body. A victim that was nailed to the cross, like someone tied in place, also had to keep their body in constant motion because of the pain from those nails and hanging there just to get some relief through the arms and the chest and the legs. But every time they moved, it agitated where the nail wounds were. And unless the guards broke the legs, the victim's primary cause of death would be hypervolemic shock excessive blood loss from the nail punctures in their feet and their hands. Also, they died of thematic shock, cardiac or respiratory arrest. We know that Jesus was nailed to the cross because later in John's Gospel, Thomas refers to the imprints of those nails that are found in his hands in John chapter 20. Furthermore, the Romans remained sensitive to the Jewish sensibility, so they hastened death many times to ensure that the men would not be left hanging on the cross during this very special Sabbath. As we move on to verses 19 through 22, Pilate ordered this titleist nailed to the cross. And the chief priest of the Jews, who John refers to the chief priest of the Jews, which is somewhat ironic because he was never referred to chief priest of the Jews. He was either just a chief priest or the Jews as a group. And it was a wordplay on Jesus, King of the Jews. 
He's saying, you're chief priest of the Jews. Temple's officials earlier clarified their allegiance not to Jesus, but to Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. So they demanded the title be altered. However, Pilate, he was fed up with them. He didn't want to have anything more to do with these Jews that had forced him to crucify an innocent man. He said, uh, what I have written, I have written. Leave me alone. He'd set truth and justice aside to retain political favor and to avoid the wrath of Tiberius, so he refused to back down on this one detail. Clearly, Pilate had impacted, or Jesus had impacted Pilate in a very strong way. He saw the credence of the claims that Jesus was innocent and he was the king of the Jews. However, we have credible evidence that Pilate later on ran into another conflict with the Samaritans. And because of this, he was recalled to Rome and then banished to Gaul. And history tells us that he died by his own hands by committing suicide. We move on to verses 23 through 24. Before nailing to the cross, Jesus was stripped completely naked. Most of our pictures for modesty's sake show him with some, a loincloth on. But those who were crucified were stripped completely naked before they were nailed to the cross. But the Jews generally wore a chiton, which was the undergarment. It was this, this undergarment that's when one piece had no seams in it, was woven in a single piece that they wore close to their body to retain their body heat. And then they wore uh, what's called a, a hemation, a robe or a cloak over that one piece garment. And because cloth was so valuable commodity in those days, the outer garments would be ripped apart at the seams and then divided among that quarter neo. However, a seamless garment would have been far less valuable if they ripped it. So they came up with a plan, so they thought was their own. John includes the details to demonstrate the remarkable level of detail which Jesus' crucifixion was fulfilled a prophecy, some of which John read this morning in Psalm 22. The prophecy was given more than a thousand years before by King David, who had envisioned the Messiah's crucifixion. And you think about it, crucifixion had not been invented at that point. It was several hundred years after that before the first crucifixion was ever recorded. And yet David wrote about it in Psalm 22. John includes his eyewitness account as we go on to verses 25 through 30 of the intimate exchange between Jesus' his mother at the base of the cross. The final details of Jesus' life. Based on this, we know that Jesus had taken Mary into his home and kept her, took care of her. In a final detail of life, Jesus placed the care of his mother into John's hands. And then he asked for something to drink. He says, I am thirsty. His mouth was dry because of the loss of blood from the scourging and the nails that pierced his feet and his hands. And he was dehydrated. He says, give me something to drink. According to the scriptures, this is also a fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 both refer to that. Someone nearby placed a sponge on a hyssop branch and they held it up to Jesus' lips. It was soaked in wine vinegar just so he could have a little refreshment to wet his lips 
to wet his mouth and his throat, his parched tongue, which stuck to the roof of his mouth, could be released just slightly. Does a hyssop branch mean anything to you? The final details of Jesus' life, which was tied to the imagery of the Passover. Later that evening, those faithful Jews would take that same hyssop branch, dip it in the sacrificed blood of the lamb, and put it on the doorpost and the lentils. That same hyssop branch that provided the sour wine to Jesus that night. It was commonly used, the wine vinegar, by the soldiers who were there. Both were reducing fevers, they contracted different diseases, and also providing refreshment. And after drinking that wine, Jesus drew one last breath, and he cried out, Tetelestria! It is called, It is Finished. It's translated in the New International Version. And John chose the Greek term to translate Jesus as Aramaic, but archaeologists have found papyrus text receipts with that same word stamped across it. Tetelestria. It means paid in full. Jesus' last breath on the cross, he declared that all sin had been canceled, paid in full, to satisfy all debt for all mankind for all time. And John declares emphatically that Jesus willingly gave up his own spirit in death. No one took his life from him, as Jesus predicted earlier in John chapter 10. As we move on to verses 31 through 34, Jesus' death came relatively quick. Three hours on the cross and he was dead. That was a very short time for somebody who was crucified. A combination of his halfway death the, night before, or the day before, or that, that morning of that day, the scourging that he endured, the blood loss from the nails, and the sheer exhaustion is something that didn't really dawn on me till this week. Jesus had not slept the night before. He'd been up all that day, maybe part of the night before that, the whole night agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then through the fake trials, six fake trials, he had not slept. No wonder he died so quickly. Any of us, by sheer exhaustion, it would have killed any of us swiftly. However, the best, it's best to take up the phrase, give up his spirit at face value. The life ended by choice. His life ended by choice. His life was not taken from him. Jews considered it an abomination to leave a corpse hanging overnight, according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, especially since the next day was the Sabbath day and a day of feasting. So they requested the men's legs be broken to bring about death before nightfall because night started the Sabbath. Some scientists suggested that victims would quickly suffocate as they were unable to pull themselves up anymore out of exhaustion and would fall down and their lungs would collapse and they could not breathe anymore. And that was part of it. But however, more recent survey, um, research 
and forensic pathology offers a more plausible explanation. It says they broke the bones. They broke the femoral bones in the third thigh as they hit them with a maul or a hammer. Believe you me, having a broken thigh bone myself, you can't stand on it. It is so painful. That would exclude or prevent them from rising up one more time to get, get that breath. The fracture resulted in the loss of two meters of blood per leg. So four meters of blood would, auto, would instantly be released in the legs as those soldiers would take a maul much bigger than this and they would bam against their left thigh and bam against the right thigh and break those bones and they would collapse on that cross. And just the lo blood loss itself would be enough to bring about hyperphalemic shock, traumatic shock, an instant drop in blood pressure as their blood rushed to their lower extremities. Congestions in those lower extremities by the blood loss, it would result in unconsciousness almost instantly, a coma, and death would follow very quickly. Having taken that sledgehammer, that maul, and breaking those legs, then they came to Jesus. They found him already dead. And to be certain he was dead, the soldier took a short spear and spliced between the ribs into his heart, and he found what he was looking for. Because out of that wound flowed blood and water, a clear liquid, Clear fluid, that was an unmistakable sign of death as the water and the blood separates upon death. So we move on to the last three verses, verses 35 through 37. John breaks the narrative here with an extended parathetical aside. John offers an eyewitness account. He says, you got to believe me. I was here through his entire life. I know what I'm talking about. He wrote this gospel more than 60 years after this instance. And by that time, there were many heresies that started to crop up among the community of believers. And ironically, few of the believers of that day, or few of the false teachers, I should say, believed that Jesus was not who he said he was, but most of them rose up at some heresies saying that, well, he was really not human at all. He was just a divine being, a divine apparition that they could see and touch. In these so-called Gnostic Gospels, it's been a fanciful stories of Jesus appearing to be eating while not actually consuming the food so that he wouldn't have any waste to eliminate. Now, some ancient critics may have claimed that Jesus didn't actually die, that he just passed out or he swooned, it's called. However, that wasn't likely John's concern when he wrote his gospel. John's detailed account about the physical evidence proved that Jesus did have a human body. He was fully human and yet fully God. To bear the witness that his literal body was resurrected later in his narrative. And John augments his eyewitness account with those Passover imagery throughout his narrative. In Exodus chapter 12, Numbers chapter 2, and, and Psalm 34 in Zechariah chapter 12, all prophecy about the Messiah and the type of death he would suffer. But I've often wondered, 
What Barabbas thought about this gift that he received from a man he never knew. Did Barabbas want to know who endured his scourging? Who carried his cross to the outskirts of that town? Who endured that gruesome, shameful death that he had earned? Barabbas undoubtedly felt overwhelmed and relieved that he avoided the cross. But did he understand that Jesus suffered his death on behalf of all sinners, including himself? And make no mistake, we are all guilty of that same sin, deserving to suffer death as a just penalty for our rebellion against our Creator. Justice can be set aside, or cannot be set aside. This rebellion demands a penalty. And that penalty is eternal separation from God in a place of torment. But God gave us a reprieve on our sentence. From the most famous old verses in the Bible, John 3, 16, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, Jesus, though absolutely innocent of everything, took the place of another man, a hopeless sinner, Barabbas. He took his place on the cross. Yes, Barabbas went free. But his unmerited freedom was merely a metaphor for a greater, more personal truth that each of us must realize. It was your place and my place that he took on the cross. So what's the application of today's message? And that's on the other side of your bulletin insert today. In a quest to devise the most painful mode of execution possible, no one exceeded the Romans' capacity for cruelty in a particular variation of the crucifixion. The Romans reserved crucifixions for slaves, deserters, revolutionaries, and the worst of all criminals, people they considered to be less than human. Cicero wrote once again, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him, what? There's no fitting word that could describe this horrible deed. Crucifixion gave the Romans ex extraordinary opportunity to inflict agony along with humiliation. Therefore, it became one of the strongest means of maintaining order and security. The governors would impose a severe punishment, especially on freedom fighters who wanted to break away from the Roman rule. So imagine Pilate's surprise when the angry mob demanded an innocent life take place of the guilty on the cross. But imagine Barnabas' or Barabbas' shock as he sat on death row and listened to that trial between Herod, between Pilate, between Jesus and the angry mob. He couldn't hear Pilate's side of the conversation. All he could hear as he sat on death row is in the distance, Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. His blood shall be on us and our children. Is told in Matthew chapter 27. Now, Barabbas may have overcome, been overcome with dread on hearing the guards approach his cell as they clunk down the corridor to his cell. I can only imagine the utter amazement he must have felt as they released him and his shackles fell off. The relief he must have felt was overwhelming 
as he got to the end of the cell block and he was released into the light of day, his punishment had been passed over. He was free. I sometimes wonder, what if Barabbas said, freedom? Well, I appreciate the offer, but I'd rather suffer that most excruciating death on the cross. I doubt if anybody in their right mind would say that as a way to avoid the cross. Say, yeah, I'm out of here. Sorry, that guy's innocent, but I'm out of here. But no one in their right mind would decline the offer of being freed from the cross. So why do people reject the opportunity today to avoid a much worse, much worse, worse fate, the eternal torment in a place of eternal death? Why would anyone refuse to accept the free gift of eternal life, purchased to them by the suffering and death of Jesus in their place? The story of the crucifixion in John has such rich imagery on it, from the stick that gave him nourishment, that hyssop branch that was used in the Passover celebration, to the prophecies that were fulfilled. He was Barabbas' Passover sacrifice that day. And he's ours if we choose to allow him, to choose to accept him. If we choose to declare, as John the baptizer declared in John chapter 1, verse 29, look, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He was our Lamb. He was sacrificed for us on that fateful day, all in God's plan from before time was created. The last question as we end, we have to ask ourselves, what has been our response to this offer of grace? And that's what we need to learn from this lesson from today. Next Sunday, we begin Thanksgiving week, and we can't think of anything more to be more thankful for than the resurrection. So as we study that miraculous event in all of history in a message titled The Miraculous Resurrection next week. So I'd encourage you to read John chapter 19, verse 38 through chapter 20, verse 10 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for our Passover lamb. We thank you that Christ took on, us, on him the penalty for our sins, that we might be set free, that we might have eternal life through all eternity, that we might be set free. As Barabbas was set free that day, we're set free by looking back to the cross and seeing Jesus' sacrifice for us as he became that Passover lamb that we might be set free for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly. Love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, 
lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.